This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The FT. Hello and welcome to World Weekly. I'm Sean Donnan, the FT's World News Editor, standing in for Gideon Rockman this week. Hardly a day goes by without more grim news from the worsening conflict in Syria. The latest estimates are that more than 80,000 people have died over the past two years. And there's also plenty of signs that the international community is struggling to generate a coherent response. This week, the European Union agreed to ease its arms embargo and to allow member countries to arm the rebels fighting to oust the Assad regime. But we've also had more evidence of divisions in the rebel ranks, that Russia isn't entirely happy with the way the West is playing things, and that Iran wants to play a growing role. Joining me to discuss the state of play and where we are likely to go from here are Rula Halaf, the FT Middle East editor, James Blitz, our diplomatic editor, and down the line from Beirut, Abigail Fielding-Smith, who has been tracking the conflict in Syria for us for the past two years. Rula, let's start with you. This conflict, from since it's become uh, militarized and eventually uh, more more like a civil war, has been in a in a military stalemate now for for quite a while. So, you know, the rebels. F- making gains for a few weeks and then the pendulum swinging back later on and also for, for several weeks. But I think that now uh, we are in a period where the regime has been making gains and there's a ve- they're now making a very strategic gain, which was not really the case before, and that is um, their attempt and probably successful attempt to take the, the town of uh, Qusair, which is north of the, of the Lebanese border, and which would then allow them to have to connect Damascus with the Alawite heartland. This is up um, on the coast. Uh, which the, is up on the Mediterranean yeah. coast. So that's quite a strategic gain and they're uh, they've been they've been fighting very hard but they've also had the support of uh, possibly several thousand Hezbollah fighters. And I think also this is because Hezbollah realizes how strategic um, the city is. As this fighting on the ground has has proceeded over the past couple of years, I mean, one of the great themes has been the struggle for Western powers and for the international community overall to come up with some kind of coherent response to this. But we have been seeing the move to this Geneva conference, what you have called Geneva II, uh, Rula, to take place at some point next month, grouping together all the sides in, in the hope of getting some kind of peaceful resolution out of that. Is that conference going to go ahead at this point, James? I think it probably will go ahead because I think it's in the interests of all the participants not to be seen to be the person that scuppered it and to show that they have some kind of equity in it. So I think the Assad regime will turn up. The opposition, which is clearly very divided at the moment, will also in some way turn up. And of course, there will be uh, regional powers as well. Now, I think what, what Rula has said 
is that the overwhelming issue at the moment is that the Assad regime is in a much stronger position than it was in a few months ago. And so the idea that this is a conference that's going to see some kind of serious discussion about a future for Syria without the Assad regime is not going to happen. So given that, given the death toll that's been on the ground, it's extremely unlikely that this conference is going to go anywhere. I think there is a very, very low level of expectation. But I still think it behoves everybody to turn up, try and look like they're talking and so on. But it'll be over, and then we'll move on to the next phase of the conflict. And at the same time, in terms of Western response, the EU this week uh, eased its arms embargo to allow the the arming of the rebels by uh, member states. So we're already seeing uh, people planning for beyond the conference in, 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 in some way. What is the, I mean, the UK has been pushing this in, in, in a big bag. What is their plan in terms of arming the rebels? What, what are we going to see? What I think we're going to see, and I think we'll see it, fairly soon, I think in the next few weeks, is the UK and France looking to boost the position of the moderate rebels around the figure of General Selim Idris, giving him what's been described to me as high volume but low-grade weaponry. And I think that is what uh, the aim is going to be. It's not going to tip the balance, however, strategically away from Assad. I mean, Assad's position is too strong. What it will do is reconfigure the rebels so that there is a strike, there is more coordination around the figure of Idris. That is the aim of, of, of the British. However, I have to say that it's going to be a highly controversial move. And within the UK, for instance, I think there is going to be a lot of political debate around this, which we haven't yet seen. And that is a political debate that is largely the result of the shadow of Iraq, if you will. The, yeah, the opposition Labour Party looks to me like it's going to flatly oppose it. And I think that's going to become quite an issue for Cameron and Haig okay. as they go towards that. There, there's also, there's also um, opinion forming that this is simply too complicated, that, you know, it's not easy to see who's the good rebel from a bad rebel, uh, and that without a very substantial intervention, the balance of power on the ground is not really likely to change that much. Uh, so I think there is that opinion that's forming and that builds the opposition to to the UK. But the UK and the French seem quite determined mm. to to push ahead because they think that the alternative is essentially that you let Assad possibly win. Now, Abby, you've been tracking this conflict for the last two years. Since, since, since the very beginning, uh, you've also been tracking the rebel movement uh, and their organization over the last two years. I mean, what is the state of, uh, of the opposition, if you will, both on the political side and on the military side? Well, on the military side, there are several quite sort of powerful alliances or, or kind of fronts have formed. Apart from the sort of brigades, they're all Islamist ones, and, and some of them are, are, you know, quite, well, there's Jafat Nusra, who are kind of very extreme, but then, you know, you've also got Salafist ones like Sal Sham. So these are kind of groups that aren't just in one place, but have fighters in different parts of the country, and to some extent they cooperate with each other. I would say those are the more kind of powerful forces on the ground. Then, you know, there's ones which nominally play lip service to General Idris, um, but the fact is, and as Idris himself admits, you know, they have no real influence over these people on the ground. No one really wants to say they're not with uh, Idris, but um, in terms of, you know, doing what he says or taking orders from him, it just simply doesn't work like that. Plus, you know, outside of these fronts, there, there remains this kind of myriad fragmentations of smaller groups, and, you know, as we've as we've written about, some of these smaller groups kind of veer from 
alliance to alliance, sort of depending on what seems like the best deal for them at any given point in time. So it's still, you know, although there's some signs of, of kind of coalescence in some areas, it, it's still a very kind of fluid and, and uh, diffuse rebel movement, which is very difficult to imagine. And on the political side? Corralling. And on the political side, even worse <laughs> in terms of divisions and, and lack of unity. I mean, this past week, there's been talks with the political opposition in Istanbul where they were supposed to agree to broaden their base and, and to, you know, position for the talks in Geneva that you were just mentioning, um, instead of which it's just descended into total chaos and acrimony. And even as we speak, they're, they're trying to kind of last minute deal to try and at least sort of have a person that can supposedly be said to kind of represent all Syrians, but I mean, it's not clear if that's going to happen, let alone a coherent policy on Geneva. And there's some suggestions that, you know, the coalition may just become like the Syrian National Council, which preceded it. These umbrella bodies, this latest attempt at an umbrella body may just become irrelevant uh, and, and international players might just start bypassing it. Now, Rula, you've met uh, General Idris, who we've talked about a couple of times here. What is he like? Does he really have what it takes to kind of bring these guys together? Is it, This is the, 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 uh, the interlocutor that the West is putting so much hope in. I think that the view in the West is that he could be a far more powerful figure if he is given the support. Essentially, General Idris is, is um, trapped between different pressures. So I think he is acceptable to a lot of groups on the ground. And they, as Abby says, they pay lip service to his leadership. But he only... Can, he can only strengthen this position and only make himself more relevant and have people listen to him if he is providing them with weapons and financing. He's not a military commander. He doesn't pretend that he's involved in operations, but he can be a unifying figure. Uh, for the military, for let's say you know maybe fifty percent of uh, of the groups on the ground, if. He can buy the, their loyalty, but he has to buy their loyalty. And to buy their loyalty, he needs the money and he needs the weapons. And so far, although the Qataris and the Saudis have been providing weapons, they have not been providing them through him, nor uh, is what they provide enough and regular. So, I mean, the, you know, the rebels might get uh, shipment one month and then have nothing for two months. And sometimes they run out of ammunition, for instance, in, in the midst of battle. Let's talk about the other side. I mean, the other the other big theme this week has been the emergence of Iran almost uh, stepping into the public diplomatic game on Syria, hosting a conference in, in Tehran and saying they very clearly want to be involved in the Geneva talks as well. How is that going to change the dynamic? Well, I mean, that is just complicating the situation even more. And it, it just underlines how much the regime has had uh, very solid support, be it from, I mean, he, they, uh, you know, Bashar al-Assad has dedicated supporters, the Iranians, Hezbollah and Russia. And on the other side, you know, the rebels have had a lot of rhetorical support, but not that much in terms of practical support that can that allows them to change the balance of power on on the ground. Now that Hezbollah is actually fighting with with Assad forces, you know, Hezbollah's fighters are more motivated, and they've have a lot of experience. And so they are able to make a difference on the ground, even though they're actually also taking quite heavy 
casualties. So I think it just shows the two, you know, the, the level of support that the two different sides have. And it, it, it regionalizes the Syrian conflict a lot more because it, it puts Lebanon at much greater risk of, of a spillover, of a direct spillover now. Abby, you're in Lebanon right now. How is the Hezbollah involvement going down there? Lebanon is, is very polarized. Supporters and opponents of the regime next door. So the people who you would expect, um, the people who are against Assad, have been, you know, denouncing it furiously um, and saying that, you know, they're leading Lebanon into the abyss. I mean, what I'm interested in is how it's playing out in amongst the Shia, Hezbollah, the Shia group, and these are the ones that are being asked to make the sacrifices. So far, you know, the, the message that Hassan Nasrallah has is putting out, which is that, you know, they have to confront these radical Sunnis in Syria, otherwise they won't be safe in Lebanon, seems to be resonating with most of them. I mean, there is a fast forward, I don't know. But just also to add to Rula's point, um, I mean, it does seem like Hezbollah really have made quite a difference. The last reports I've been seeing from Qusayr is that, you know, although it's maybe taken a bit longer than anticipated, Hezbollah really are helping the regime make progress there. And that now completely cuts off the rebels from their support lines to the Lebanese border. So you're getting a lot of um, sort of angry threats from the rebel side now, how they're going to kind of attack Hezbollah in Lebanon. But there have been some rockets falling in uh, Herma, which is the kind of part of the Lebanese border that's near Syria. I'm, you know, I'm not sure there's really going to be something that they can do about it. Uh, Hezbollah are making a very powerful intervention, which people are very worried are going to destabilize Lebanon. But, but at the moment, there isn't any kind of obvious blowback. Let's let, let's wrap up with a with a, with a quick uh, round around the table uh, and uh, some some quick predictions as to what we're going to see over over the coming months and uh, through the end of the year. James, where are what are we going to be talking about with uh, regards to Syria when we get to the end of the year? How are things going to develop over the next couple of months? If I had to make a prediction, I think the Syrian civil war will be continuing at the end of this year. There will be no resolution at this peace conference. I think it will take place, but um, I cannot see that there will be a solution that bridges the two sides, the Assad regime and the opposition. After that, I think we will see an escalation on the military side. We will see Russia pouring more weapons and material into Syria. We will see Hezbollah and Iran remaining firm. We will see on the other side, the UK, France, and we haven't mentioned, I think we will see the US coming in behind the British and the French with armed shipments. That is a prediction. The fundamental question at the end will be to what extent chemical and biological weapons fall into the hands of proxies to the Assad regime, be it Hezbollah or alternatively be it Jabhat al-Nusra and the um, fundamentalists fighting the regime. That, I think, is still the big turning point question we we haven't discussed. And presumably what role Israel plays, another big name we haven't mentioned uh, so far. Rula? I think, you know, similar predictions, although I wouldn't be as specific, because <laughs> I think the Americans will take a very long time before they come in with any um, with any military backing. But but I, I think there will be some kind of a political track, but a political track that's more of a of a process and that, you know, the real the real dynamic will remain a military dynamic and a continuation of of, of the war on the ground. Abby? One of the main trends I see on the ground at the moment is these sort of divisions between the rebels, which we talked about actually sort of turning into open confrontation. Um, we've had, you know, the start, first hints of that in um, northern Syria, um, particularly in sort of resource-rich areas they've taken over. 
and the sort of clashes over resources there, I can see that that you know happening more and more as this rebellion continues in the absence of any kind of coherent leadership. That's three very grim predictions and a sure sign that we'll be back and talking about this again on World Weekly. That's it for this week. My thanks to Rula Halaf, James Blitz, and down the line from Beirut, Abigail Fielding-Smith. I'm Sean Donnan. World Weekly is produced by Katie Carney. Till next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.